You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Holly and Jessica. is a small, quaint, and typically English town in East Cambridgeshire. It's north of London, about a two-hour train journey away, and sits between the two larger towns of Newmarket to the south and Ely to the north. About 10,000 people live there. Its high street has a small war memorial on one end and is otherwise dotted with the normal shops and takeaways with St. Andrew's Church on the far end. It's a normal, middle-class-looking town. A nice place to live. The Wells and Chapman families were well-established in Soham. Kevin and Nicola Wells were both from the area, Kevin running a successful window-cleaning business and Nicola working as a legal secretary. They were very social, and often had neighbours and friends around for parties. Leslie and Sharon Chapman were a quieter couple, both from the area but not from Soham itself. Leslie worked as an engineer, and Sharon worked as a learning support teacher at St Andrew's Primary. In 2002, the Wells' youngest child, Holly, was 10. She had an older brother, Oliver, who was 12 that year. She was a model child and an excellent student, enjoying writing and art. She was musical and played the coronet and sang. She was responsible and kept in touch with her mother when she was out of the house and was always polite. She had pretty, shoulder-length blonde hair and enjoyed indulging in her girly side. She was a majorette and liked dressing up and having her hair done that sort of thing. Jessica was the youngest of three girls in the Chapman family. Her sisters were 16 and 14 in 2002. Even though she was a few years younger, she was one of them and followed their lead in behaviour. She was very well-behaved and mature for her age, responsible. She kept in contact with her mother via mobile phone and made sure to ring her to let her know where she was throughout the day. She was a sporty girl. She liked football and swimming and was a bit of a tomboy. She never wore dresses or girly things and preferred tracksuits. She wore her brown hair in ponytails or covered it with a baseball cap. She was good in school and her favourite bands were S Club 7 and Steps. She was loud and bubbly and popular at school. The two girls met aged four in the local nursery in Soham, and they became fast friends from that point on. Both girls were huge fans of David Beckham and showed their support of him by following his team, Manchester United. On Sunday the 4th of August 2002, the Chapman family had just returned from a two-week holiday in Menorca, and Jessica was eager to see her best friend. She had a gift for her, 
a necklace with the word love on it, and she had loads of stories about what she and her cousins had gotten up to while they were away. The day and night before, Holly had spent with another school friend, who she had over for a slumber party. That Sunday, the Wells's barbecued, and Jessica came over to catch up with her friend. The two spent a lot of time on Holly's computer in her room and catching up. They had a habit of wearing similar matching clothes, and so emerged that evening both of them in David Beckham Manu jerseys and black shorts. Jessica had borrowed the clothes from Holly's brother to match her friend. Nicola Wells saw with delight that the two girls had managed to match and stopped them in the hall to take a photograph. It was a cute moment, but would later take on so much more meaning than that. After that, the girls retreated back to the bedroom and the allure of the computer, but they soon got bored mucking about on the internet, it being a pretty boring place for preteens back then, and the two headed out into the bright evening for a walk. They left the house and headed towards the centre of Soham, and then wandered towards the sports centre in town. There, they went inside and went to a vending machine to buy some sweets, and then wandered off, arm in arm, towards the car park of Soham Village College. The place was entirely deserted. It was around dinner time and edging towards the end of summer. No one was hanging around the school that didn't have to be. The car park was empty, as were the school grounds. They began to wander. It was a place that they were familiar with, but hadn't really been to on their own before. They walked across the grounds towards the caretaker's house, where they knew one of their favourite teachers, Miss Carr, lived. And then, despite it being bright outside, near to their homes, with two responsible girls armed with a mobile phone, they disappeared. Meanwhile, back at the Wells's home, the adults were busy barbecuing. It had been spitting rain on and off, and the cooking stuff had been moved to the shelter of the garage. But the Wellses and their guests, Rob and Trudy White, carried on. They ate and played cards and chatted and had a few beers. At about 8pm, the Wrights said it was time for them to head home, and so Nicola went upstairs to fetch the girls and to have them say goodbye to the guests. But the girls weren't in Holly's room. They weren't in any room of the house. And wherever the girls had got to, Holly had left her mobile phone behind. Despite the panic that immediately set in, the Wells thought that perhaps the girls would be back for half eight. It was a time that they would know for sure that they were to be back at the house by, and so, after searching the house once more, the couple sat and waited. But there was no sign of the girls. Nicola rang the Chapmans to see if the girls were there, or, if not, to let them know what was going on. Sharon Chapman told Nicola that the girls weren't there either, and as soon as Sharon hung up the phone, she dialed her daughter's mobile. Jessica was good about the phone. She'd check in with her mum on a regular basis, and so when Sharon rang the phone and got a pre-recorded message from Vodafone indicating that the phone was off, sheer terror took over. At a quarter to nine, Kevin Wells jumped on his bike. 
he was over the limit for driving, but had to go out and search. He went down his drive and headed towards the town centre. He went up High Street and over to the sports centre and as far as the college. Leslie Chapman had gotten into his car and was making the same drive, with his wife having gotten into the other family car and gone in the opposite direction, away from the town. The men passed each other as they went back and forth across the town, checking all the streets and side streets for any sign of their daughters, and asking the few people who were out at that hour on a Sunday if they'd seen the girls, but no one had. Nicola and Sharon rang everyone they knew that the girls might have gone to, and still no one had any news of Holly or Jessica. Sharon said to Nicola, quote, You know they don't do this. It's too long. End quote. By 10 p.m., it was clear that something was very wrong and that they needed help in their search. They called the police, who were at the Wells's home in minutes and who joined in the search on foot and called out to the homes of friends of Holly and Jessica to find out if the girls had been there or to get ideas where to look for them. That night, Jessica's phone records were accessed by the police, but at that point, all Vodafone could say was that the phone had last been on somewhere near to Soham. It wasn't terribly helpful. Still, more credit was added to the account, just in case Jessica tried to use the phone and found that she couldn't. At 1am, PC Anna Burton arrived on the grounds of Soham Village College with her dog. She wanted access to the school to search. She came across the caretaker at the college, Ian Huntley. When she told Huntley why she had come by, he said that he'd take her around the grounds and school himself. He said he'd heard that there were missing girls, but he hadn't seen them on the grounds that evening. They spent time calling out the girls' names while Huntley opened gates and doors with his set of keys. But when PC Burton noticed a large shed, a hangar used to store gardening equipment across from Huntley's house on the grounds, Huntley said he'd no keys for it. She banged on the door and listened for a minute before heading off. After that, a teacher from the school, Susan Hurl, found the caretaker on the grounds while she was out looking for the girls. She'd asked if he'd seen the girls, and this time he said that he had. He said he'd heard the girls were missing, but hadn't made the connection to the two girls he'd seen walk past his house that evening at about half six. He told her that they'd stopped to ask about Maxine Carr, his girlfriend, who had been a teaching assistant in their school that year, and after that, the two had skipped off away together. Mrs. Hurl said that he had to go to the police to give a statement, and so near to 4 a.m., Huntley arrived in Eli to speak to the police. Sergeant Pauline Nelson spoke to him. She noted that he seemed freshly showered and that he seemed hesitant to be near her and that he told his story in a mumble. She was suspicious. When detectives called to the caretaker's house the next morning to take a statement, it was clear that Huntley had not slept. Yet he still seemed freshly showered. His hair was wet. He also seemed nervous and kept wiping the sweat from his palms onto the side of the chair he sat in. Despite the fact that it was drizzling rain, he had clothes out on the line to dry, and the house had a strong lemon scent to it, 
from cleaning products. It was odd, but they said nothing. Huntley explained to the police that, initially, he hadn't realised that the kids he had spoken to were the missing girls. It wasn't until someone had mentioned that they were wearing matching Man U tops that the light bulb had gone off, so to speak. Ian Kevin Huntley was born on the 31st of January 1974 to parents Kevin and Linda. The couple had been married when Linda discovered she was pregnant. It was an unexpected and unplanned pregnancy. The two were very young, only 18. Kevin was still in an apprenticeship as a gas fitter, and Linda worked at a low-paid job at a printer's. The couple initially lived with Linda's parents in Grimsby. But they worked hard and soon moved out to their own place in Immington, a short distance north from Linda's parents. Kevin Huntley was a stern man. He was noted as strict and somewhat dour, but he was a hard worker and was utterly devoted to his wife. In 1975, the couple had another son, Wayne. When Wayne came along, Ian began to get jealous of his little brother and began acting out. He would scream and cry, particularly if his mother was caring for his little brother, and he kept his parents up all night on many occasions. People noticed that he was a particularly difficult baby and child, and it seems that at an early age, he learned to manipulate, to get his way. The jealousy of his younger brother would be a feature for the rest of Huntley's life. His father's aloofness and strictness meant that he clung to his mother and increased the jealousy and neediness. By the time he reached school, he was singled out as the class loner. He was an easy target for schoolyard bullies. He was called names over his appearance. He was decidedly plain, but with a square-shaped face and a large forehead that earned him the nicknames Spadehead and White Cliffs of Dover. He tried to stand up to his bullies and give as good as he got, but if it ever looked like things were going to escalate further than a slagging match, he'd run to tell his teachers. Of course, this only increased his classmates' ire and disdain. On top of all that, Huntley told friends that around this time he was also beaten and sexually abused by an adult. The social outcast status followed Huntley into secondary school. He was bullied there too, and was known to fake asthma attacks to get out of football, which he was particularly bad at and teased about. Nothing he did seemed to improve the situation. In fact, his classmates thought him sly. The situation got so bad that he actually transferred schools in third form but Huntley was still isolated and a loner in his new school. This was in stark contrast to how Huntley seems to have viewed himself, though. He was obsessed with airplanes and joined the Air Training Corps with hopes to become a pilot in the RAF. That didn't last long, though. After he left the Air Training Corps, his airplane obsession transformed into the hobby of making and flying model airplanes, and plane spotting at airfields. It wasn't quite living up to the image of himself, but he enjoyed it all the same, and it seemed the closest he was going to get to flying a plane. His other hobbies, besides being into playing computer games, were weightlifting and shooting air rifles. 
He viewed himself as someone who was powerful, strong, and in control, but his classmates disagreed. The bullying and isolation led to Huntley's first attempted suicide. He overdosed on a box of paracetamol. But this attempt only worsened his situation in school, with his classmates believing that he did it to get attention. Another thing that bothered his classmates was Huntley's behaviour towards girls. He seemed preoccupied with his own sexual success and progress, and in order to ensure that he got what he wanted, he would pursue girls that were younger than him. He would lie to them and compliment them and take on a braggadocious character full of bravado in order to impress them. He took advantage of the fact that they were younger than him to get what he wanted. Huntley left school when he was 16 after getting five mediocre GCSEs and began a series of uninspiring menial jobs. He continued to con girls into going out with him, him telling them stories about how he had been a pilot in the RAF or saying that he was better off and in a better job than he actually was. He moved around a lot because his lies eventually caught up with him. But he was willing to go further than telling a string of tall tales to get what he wanted from girls. When he was 18, he effectively groomed a 12-year-old girl, enticed her back to his flat, fed her alcopops until she was drunk, and then raped her. At 20, he took an 11-year-old girl that he had befriended at a funfair back to his flat, telling her that he was her boyfriend now. He began kissing her and trying to go further, but she ended up screaming until he let her go. The same sort of situation occurred again with a 16-year-old girl, who he got back into his flat. When she refused to have sex with him, he held her there for two weeks, refusing to give her food and water. When she finally got away from him, she was hospitalized for dehydration and malnutrition. These were by no means isolated incidents. Huntley would quickly establish a pattern of manipulating and abusing the women who came in and out of his life. He seemed to have a strong desire to prove himself, as it were, when it came to women, and quote-unquote being a man. And wrapped up in all of that was also a strong desire to marry. In 1994, when he was working alongside his parents at a factory, he met an 18-year-old girl called Claire. They started going out, and their relationship progressed quickly. Within six months, they were married, in January of 1995, at the local registry office. Pretty much immediately after that, Huntley began beating her. He would punch her and kick her, and the only person who could get in between the two to stop it was Kevin Huntley, who Ian still seemed to be scared of. After two weeks of constant physical and mental abuse, Claire left him. He didn't just let her go, though, of course. At one point, as she was trying to walk out, he faked a fit. Claire called an ambulance, and the paramedics came and said that he was totally fine. Ian hadn't had a fit at all. There was a further huge falling out in the Huntley household when Claire ended up going out with and eventually marrying Ian's little brother Wayne. The next person to end up in Huntley's life was a girl called Katie that he met when she was 15 years old. He quickly moved her into his flat 
and had her drop out of school and began isolating her from her family. He would bully her and lose his temper, exploding into rages at her for the slightest thing. He wore down her self-esteem, and then he began beating her. Of course, he would apologise after each beating. After Katie finally managed to get away from him, Huntley was back on the prowl on the streets of Grimsby. He liked to hang around the bars that stayed open late, and he targeted women who had obviously been drinking heavily. On a night in May at one such pub, Huntley spotted an 18-year-old girl and tried to chat her up, but she was having none of it. When the pub closed, he followed her out, and as she walked home alone, he pulled her into an alley. He punched her and threatened her with a brick to the head before tearing her clothes and brutally raping her, while covering her mouth to prevent her from screaming. Eventually, the girl managed to escape and got home to her parents and called the police. When the rape hit the papers, Huntley turned himself into the police and, after a week in prison, was released on bail. The case was subsequently dropped, however. The police thought that there was insufficient evidence. This may have been because Huntley and his father paraded about the idea that Ian had in fact been elsewhere and caught on camera at the time the attack had happened. Maxine Anne Cap was born in Grimsby to Alfred Cap and Shirley Cap. She was the second of two daughters, but there was a ten-year age gap between her and her big sister Haley. When Maxine was two years old, her mother left her father, and he would have nothing to do with his family from that point on. Maxine resented him for this and would eventually change her last name to Carr to further distance herself from him. She was a quiet, withdrawn child, though well-behaved, and she got on reasonably well in school. That said, by the time she hit secondary, her self-esteem was terribly low, and she began to binge eat. When she put on weight, she was teased, and eventually this morphed into bulimia and anorexia, which became so severe her mother would attempt to force-feed her, and she was once hospitalised. Her low self-esteem and self-centeredness would be a feature of her young life. She wanted to be valued, and thought that pursuing a career in teaching would help her accomplish this. But unfortunately for her, she didn't take to her studies in college, and she ended up working in the same factory as her mother, carrying out the sort of menial job she had hoped to avoid. In early adulthood, Maxine also took to drinking. She would transform from the introverted, shy young girl into a totally different person when she was loosened up with booze. And she loved this alter ego. She would dance on tables and flash people and pursue men for one-night stands. She managed to have a string of relationships and short-term lovers, though the boyfriends never lasted long. Along with her drinking came extreme flirtatiousness, which could be difficult to watch. But worse, if her partner showed any interest in anyone else, or simply not enough interest in her, then she would fly into jealous rages. And that was the extent of the emotional involvement anyone could establish with Maxine. She was so terrified of rejection that often the only indication that she had feelings at all for her boyfriends was that she could experience this anger. She maintained an emotional distance and aloofness from them at all times. 
She was a severely anxious woman who had a strong desire to have a man in her life, but she wanted to be the whole world for that man and was too much for pretty much everyone to handle. She was on the lookout for someone who could take care of her and put up with her and someone she could devote herself to. In the summer of 1998, Huntley spotted Maxine when they were both out at a nightclub in Grimsby. Each of them had met their match that night. They started going out and very quickly Maxine had moved from her mother's house and in with Huntley. They seemed to really connect, especially for Maxine, in a way that she never had before. Her jealousy, lack of self-esteem and willingness to devote herself to Huntley suited him and he was happy to make her the centre of his world. The two ended up distancing themselves from their friends and acquaintances, nearly stopping going out altogether, and Maxine only rarely returned to see her mother, who she had up until this point been very close with. Her mother urged her to leave Huntley, but she wouldn't. He was so possessive of her, and what would have been a red flag and a turnoff for the other girls Huntley had been with was a huge selling point for Maxine. They were each other's reflections. And though they seemed to perfectly suit the other's dysfunctions, those dysfunctions led to a tumultuous relationship. The two nearly seemed to thrive on their arguments, though. They screamed and threw things, and of course Huntley beat her. He'd chastise her for not cleaning or cooking properly or enough, and she would beg his forgiveness. This cycle would have been soul-destroying for any other couple, but it was as close to perfection for these two as it could get. Maxine didn't even leave Ian when she found out that he'd been cheating on her with a 15-year-old schoolgirl. Maxine's response was to attempt suicide, which, rather than setting off alarm bells, had Huntley running back to her. This was a woman who would die to be with him, and that's exactly what he wanted. One of his friends said of Huntley's newfound relationship, quote, he talked about her like she was a cross between a sex slave and a cleaning woman. He loved it, end quote. All that said, Maxine wasn't faithful to Huntley either. Whenever he'd go off with another woman, she'd take herself out to the bars in Grimsby and resume her nightlife, full of drinking, flirtations, and one-night stands. She still needed to feel wanted by anyone, even if it wasn't Huntley. But he was always her number one. She called him her partner, and he called her the missus. Even apart, they were obsessed with one another. Huntley ended up leaving her and moving in with a 24-year-old, and this young woman reported that he seemed unable to stop talking about Maxine. He was as ever controlling, but at one point he insisted that she no longer answer the phone. The new woman thought that it was likely to ensure that he could intercept calls from Maxine. After they got back together, they decided that they needed a change of scene and rented an apartment together in Scunthorpe. They got engaged. However, to buy the ring, Huntley had taken out a loan. He also splurged on matching high-end watches and a new car for them. With that loan came debt, and it was a debt that Huntley wasn't able to service. After a short while, the two up and left, and set up yet again in a new town, Scotter in Lincolnshire. But the debt collectors found them there too, and in 2001 they moved on again to East Anglia. 
Huntley began working in a pub, but then he heard about a job opening at Soham Village College. They were looking for a caretaker. The village was nearby, small, pretty, and rural. Huntley began his new job there in September of 2001, and he and Maxine moved into the caretaker's house on the grounds of the school, at Five College Close. When he started, he was subject to a three-month probationary period where he would be asked to volunteer until they were sure he could do the job. But by December of that year, the job was secure, and he was now in charge of a team of four people who looked after the school and its grounds. Two months later, Maxine landed a job as a teaching assistant in the local Church of England primary school, St. Andrews. Everything seemed to be looking up, and the couple were settling down to a nice life with one another. Huntley was popular with the kids in school, and he had made a good impression with the teaching staff, turning on the charm he had learned to use so effectively. He was asked to supervise detention on occasion, to help out the teaching staff. Because he was a bit younger than the rest of the staff, he was seen as cooler, and it was noted he got on particularly well with the girls in the college. The boys, though, were another matter. They were suspicious of him. He'd yell at them for slight infractions, but he'd let the girls away with things. It didn't sit right with some of them, and he was disliked. Despite the fact that Maxine was not offered a permanent position at her school, likely due to the fact that she got on much better with the children than she did with the adults, the couple had really taken to the small town of Soham. They were known in the town and were friendly with neighbours and seemed like a happy, young, engaged couple. In fact, both sets of the parents of the missing girls knew the couple now living in the caretaker's cottage. Kevin Wells had met Ian because Kevin had the contract to clean the windows of Soham Village College. Sharon Chapman worked at St. Andrew's Primary School as a support teacher, and it was there that she met Maxine Carr. The weekend of the 4th of August, Ian Huntley was on his own in their house. Maxine had gone up to Grimsby to visit her mother. He was insecure and rang her off on that weekend to check to see what she was up to. He knew that she was going out to a pub that Saturday night and texted her furiously, demanding to know where she was and who she was with. He'd even tried to set up a date the night before with a local woman from Soham, but she'd declined too. When Maxine wouldn't pick up the phone to him on Sunday morning, he was fuming. She was hungover and in bed asleep. She didn't return the call until 6.24pm that evening. The call lasted just over two minutes and was basically a shouting match. Shortly after, Maxine sent him a text saying, quote, Don't make me feel bad, I'm with my family. End quote. Once the police had left after searching the grounds once more on Monday morning, Huntley went on a cleaning spree. He'd cleaned the ground floor of the house, top to bottom, and even done laundry for the first time in his life. He had his 13-month-old tyres replaced with new ones. He travelled to Eli to have them changed and paid the guy an extra tenner to put down a different reg plate number on the records. He cleaned the car in and out and ripped out the carpeting that covered the boot, replacing it with an old mat. 
Then he went back out and rejoined the search efforts. He helped direct the searches of the college grounds. By that stage on Monday, the families and friends of the girls, as well as the police, had been out all night, and it had been raining for most of that. Holly and Jessica left the Wells house with only their football tops on, with light trousers. It was unlikely that they would choose to stay out in the rain. People from the town began to turn up to help search, as well as U.S. Air Force personnel from the Lakenheath and Mildenhall air bases, both nearby to the town of Soham. That day, the search went on for 16 hours. The town and surrounding flat Fenland with ditches and streams were difficult to search. It would have been easy to miss signs of the girls in that landscape. A bloodhound was brought in and eventually a helicopter with thermal imaging was engaged to scan the area for signs of them. Searchers were joined by news crews, jumping on the story of not one but two pretty middle-class young girls gone missing in broad daylight. By half three that day, in an unusual move, Holly and Jessica's parents were asked to make a public appeal. It was a bit earlier in the operation than usual, but the police believed it was warranted in this case. The day after, the girl's hero, David Beckham, made a public plea too, asking the girls to go home, or to ring and tell their parents where they were, and that they were safe. Tips flooded in early in the week, with police taking 2,500 calls, doing door-to-door inquiries at 400 homes, and stopping 700 cars. Over 60 specialist search teams were called in to help out, as well as leadership within the police who were experienced with searches for missing children. On Tuesday afternoon, Huntley rang Maxine Carr, who had been out on the prowl in bars with her mother in Grimsby, between visiting relatives and fighting off hangovers. The call came in at 4.25, and Huntley asked her to come home. He told her that the girls were missing, and that they'd been in their house. He said he was scared that the police would suspect him of doing something to them because he had been implicated in crimes before and he'd been alone in the house. Maxine agreed that she'd return the next day. On Wednesday, Huntley drove to Grimsby and collected Maxine to bring her home. Sometime between then and the next time police would call to the caretaker's home on the grounds of the college, Maxine had agreed to lie for Huntley. She told police that she had been in the bath when the girls called by the house. She had been in the caretaker's house at Five College Close the whole time, all weekend. Ian Huntley now had an alibi. But when he was asked to give a swab for his DNA sample, he started to get paranoid. He asked the police, how long did DNA last, and what kind of things could it be found in? Police maintained a high presence in the Soham area while the hunt for the missing girls continued. Both sets of parents made pleas in the British press and on television for whoever had their girls to come forward and to let them go home. Press, looking for more copy, interviewed members of the community about the missing girls. Two people emerged as sort of spokespeople for the town, beyond the head teacher of the girls' school and the local vicar. 
The local caretaker was one of the last people to see the girls and gave a number of interviews to reporters who were now camped out in the town. He said, quote, I must have been one of the last people to speak to them. You can't help thinking about it, end quote, and that it, quote, beggars belief. Both Huntley and Carr appeared on television and seemed to have gotten over their initial fear that they would be implicated in the girls going missing, and they took to their roles as emotional onlookers and so-called talking heads for the press. But people had their suspicions. In one interview, Carr referred to the girls in the past tense for the entirety and had to be asked to re-record the segment. Huntley said that he was one of the last to see the girls before they went missing, before the investigation had concluded that, and also at one point asked if the girls' clothing had been found, which stood out as an odd detail, given no one knew what had become of them. The Saturday after the disappearance, nearly one week on, two girls were filmed in a reenaction of Holly and Jessica's last movements, amidst criticism of the police that was beginning to appear in the press. There was no progress being made in the case according to them, and they asked how were the authorities going to find these girls. The local police station had been closed over a decade before, and there had been a planned network of surveillance cameras proposed for the town, but this had never been implemented. Each lead the police got was scrutinised by the press, who lacked anything else to report, and each time it came to nothing, the force was open to yet more questioning of their tactics and progress. And there were a number of false leads. A woman said she'd seen the girls near to the town of Little Thetford, a town north of Soham near to the larger town of Eli, but it wasn't them. Police asked that kids not wear Man U jerseys for the time being to stop these kind of sightings. Another lead came from a taxi man who said he'd seen a green Vauxhall or Peugeot car the evening of the 4th. A man was driving and he said he saw two kids inside who were quote-unquote thrashing out at the driver, causing him to swerve into the road. It turned out that the man had gotten the time wrong and when he'd seen that car, Holly and Jessica had been captured on CCTV in Soham. Still, the police had spent considerable time tracking down all similar cars in the area. And amid all those dead ends were rumours that swept across the town, one that the girls had been lured away by a paedophile they'd met online in a chat room, and another was that there was a halfway house for sex offenders, which had been opened in secret nearby, and someone from there was responsible. Papers offered huge rewards for information. And yet the police needed the cooperation of the press. Part of their tactic to try and flush out the perpetrator was to humanise Holly and Jessica in the media, to have their parents appeal for their return, and to make whoever had them, or had taken them, feel guilt for what they'd done, and empathy for the girls' families. On Tuesday the 13th of August, another tip came in. A jogger reported being in Newmarket, a town south of Soham, on the night the girls disappeared. He was out late, between 10 and 11pm, and he heard screams, and also saw freshly turned earth in the area above the Newmarket racecourse. A fingertip search of the area was organised in advance of forensics coming in to dig. People thought that for sure, 
This is where the girls had ended up, and the town of Somme awaited the results of the dig. A family liaison officer was sent around to the Wells and Chapman houses to prepare them for the fact that they may be about to receive some terrible news. The families waited up all night while the digging went on, but by morning the mounds of fresh dirt the jogger had seen proved to be nothing more than a badger set. It was likely that that was the explanation for the screaming he heard too. Badgers. The news came with mixed emotions. Holly and Jessica were still missing, but there was still the hope that they might yet be alive somewhere. On Wednesday the 14th of August, one of the detectives appealed for the abductor to listen to the voicemails left on Jessica's mobile phone. In an attempt to get whoever had taken the girls, to turn on the mobile. Of course, the phone was long gone by that stage. Wherever it went, it was never recovered. But by Thursday the 15th of August, engineers at Vodafone had managed to study the cell site data from Jessica's phone and get a more detailed breakdown of her movements that evening. Most of Soam was covered by a single mast, located at the football club, but there were some discreet areas that got their coverage through a mast in Burwell, another town directly south of Soham. The final signal given by Jessica's phone, what they called the goodbye signal, came from one of those areas, and the only one of those on the girls' route, according to the CCTV and what they knew of the ambling walk the girls had gone on, lined up with the house of a man that the police were already suspicious of five college close, and the home of Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr, the last place that the girls had been seen alive. Though the police had looked in to him and Maxine under their various names, no criminal record had turned up. But now, with a bit of digging, they found out that Ian Huntley had once been charged with rape. On top of that, they were getting calls from people in Grimsby, who had seen Maxine Carr in that town the night that the girls went missing. They said that there was no way she was upstairs taking a bath in her house, like she had been saying to the police, and on television. Two plainclothes detectives arrived at the caretaker's house on Friday the 16th of August. The morning had seen another plea by the Chapman family, who ended their media audience with the assertion that they knew the police were doing what they could and that there was a lot more going on behind the scenes than what the press knew. Huntley was asked if he would come to the station in Eli to answer some questions, and he agreed. Carr was there too, and when asked if she'd like to join, she also said yes. So the two got into unmarked police cars, and at 3.45pm they were driven to two separate police stations. The press only realised what had happened when they were told that there was to be a statement made at the college. Some of them had stood by and watched the detective arrive and then take Carr and Huntley away. Huntley was taken to a station in Eli and Carr ended up in Peterborough. They needed to be kept apart if the police were to establish that Maxine could not in fact act as an alibi for her fiancé. That didn't work though. The two stuck to the story that they had been repeating for nearly two weeks at that point. Ian Huntley was brought to the police station in Eli and insisted that he had had nothing to do with the disappearance of Holly and Jessica. In fact, 
The mere accusation had altered his mental state, it would seem. He cried and foamed at the mouth and dribbled while being questioned. He said he knew nothing. He was innocent. And so another tactic was tried. The two were released and allowed to meet at a hotel room on the outskirts of Cambridge. The room was, of course, bugged. The police hoped that they would discuss their predicament and what had actually happened. But they didn't. After that, Huntley was taken to his father's house, which again had been wiretapped. His parents supported him and said how devastated he was and shaken he was about the whole thing. Meanwhile, the house and college and grounds were being searched yet again. Police discovered the key to the large hangar on the grounds. It was on Huntley's keychain all along, and after a thorough search, they discovered two partially burnt Manchester United tops in a barrel, hidden under a black bin bag. Huntley had not had a chance to get rid of them over the past weeks, due to the presence of the media and police in the area. There were fingerprints on the bag that was used to attempt to cover them up, and they matched those taken from Huntley. Shortly after, Huntley and Carr were picked up by the police yet again in two separate sweeps, Huntley from his parents' home and Carr from the hotel room that they had left her in. When the police arrived at Huntley's, they found Ian foaming at the mouth, drooling and talking gibberish. Thirty miles away in Peterborough Police Station, Maxine Carr was also being held. She also appeared disturbed, and nearly immediately, she became unable or refused to eat and nearly instantly began losing weight. At half twelve on Saturday the 17th of August 2002, a local gamekeeper, Keith Pryor, and his friends were out searching the fields where he worked in the Suffolk countryside. Keith had noticed a foul smell on the lands and thought that maybe someone had dumped manure or a dead sheep and he and his friends went out to investigate. In a ditch, they found the source. There were two tiny, burned bodies lying side by side. They had been carefully placed there and set alight, and such was the damage to the small bodies that at first Keith didn't know what he was looking at. When the realisation set in, they raised the alarm. The bodies of the two girls remained in situ for the forensics team to carry out their work for two days before they were removed from the scene and taken to Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge for further examination. They were in such a state that it proved difficult to even formally identify them, which had to be carried out by DNA in the end. Meanwhile, the police were focused on destroying Huntley's alibi, realising that the rest of their case relied upon the circumstantial evidence of the phone records, the burnt clothing, and the fact that Huntley was the last person to see the girls alive. They requested and were granted two extensions to keep the pair in custody for questioning without charging them yet for the abduction and murder of the girls. Maxine was the first to cave and admitted that she had been in Grimsby until the Tuesday after the girls first went missing. A number of people had also come forward to say that they had in fact seen her there then. Her excuse was that Huntley was scared of being accused of doing something to the girls because he'd been the last to see them, and because of the dropped rape charges from years before. 
she said he'd been traumatized by his week or so in prison then, and she knew he wouldn't be able to go through that again. She admitted that that's what Ian had told her to say. But she was also adamant that he'd had nothing to do with the murders. She was calm during the questioning, despite admitting that she had lied and that Huntley had beaten her on occasion when they fought. She said that all the cleaning that had gone on in the house was totally normal. She was a good girlfriend and housekeeper, and that's why she'd been seen scrubbing the floors of the caretaker's house. That was all. She said, quote, I wouldn't lie about murder. I wouldn't lie about two kids that I know. Yeah, I might love him, but I wouldn't do those kind of things. End quote. The police brought her through the evidence that they had, the clothes and the hanger, the fingerprint, the fact that Huntley went plane spotting up in Lakenheath, that she'd given him a false alibi, and that he had her clean up. She sobbed as she denied that Huntley had had anything to do with the girl's deaths. She said she hadn't cleaned up after his crimes. She wouldn't budge from that. She was adamant. Huntley, meanwhile, sat across from detectives and stared blankly at them. He said nothing, and barely acknowledged their presence at all. On Tuesday the 20th of August, Huntley was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and sent to Rampton Hospital to be psychologically assessed. Later that afternoon, he was charged with the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. That night, near to 11pm, Maxine Carr was charged with assisting an offender. Later, a charge of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice would also be added. Back in Soham, floral tributes and notes from the town from all over England and the UK and the world began pouring in expressing sympathy for the families of Holly and Jessica. St. Andrew's Church in the centre of Soham ended up effectively surrounded by a wall of flowers. It was clear that the small town would not be able to hold all the mourners for the two young girls, and so, on the 30th of August, there was a service of celebration and remembrance held in the large Norman cathedral in the town of Ely. Two thousand people attended, wearing the bright colours that they had been encouraged to select rather than the traditional morning colours. Police, children from the school, family, friends and the public gathered to remember Holly and Jessica, all people who, just days before, had hoped against hope that they would be found safe and sound. Each girl then had a small private funeral and burial in the following days. Maxine Carr had been held in the Peterborough police station next to the magistrate's court for four days before the police were required to put on the court record where she was being held, ahead of a court appearance on the 21st of August. As time for the hearing neared that day, a crowd formed at the station. She left the station with her head covered by a blanket to shield her from the photographers, who had come equipped with ladders to get a good shot. Then she was bundled into a van and driven over to the station, the route lined with 70 police officers in an attempt to rein in the unruly crowd who were filled with hate for this woman. People screamed and yelled out as the van rounded a corner and came into view. 
Once in the courtroom, Carr sat silently for the most part as proceedings went on around her. Her only reaction to the proceedings was after the charges were read out and the maximum penalty for the crime she was charged with was described. She seemed shocked to hear that she could face life imprisonment, or perhaps maybe the fact of it as a possibility had finally set in. She spoke only to give her name for the record, and after two hours the hearing was over, and she was ushered back to the van and the waiting mob who were now baying for her blood. The crowd had worked itself into a fever pitch in the two hours Carr was in the courtroom. People shrieked obscenities at the van as it passed by slowly. A woman threw eggs, and another broke through the police barricade and slammed her fists on the van itself. Another woman was held back by police as she attempted to kick the van as it passed. The crowd was nigh on uncontrollable, and another 20 officers had been called in in the meantime to help out, but they were fighting a losing battle. Huntley was initially sent for observation at Rampton Hospital where he was watched by personnel 24 hours a day. But as difficult as that sounds, he also had the benefit of an ensuite room complete with TV and CD player and had access to the gym and other recreational facilities. He was also able to interact with other long-term patients there, so it wasn't too bad. On the 8th of October, though, he was deemed fit to face the charges against him. His doctors said, quote, Ian Huntley is not suffering from any form of major mental illness. In particular, he is not suffering from schizophrenia, paranoid disorder, manic depressive psychosis, or a significant mood disorder. His long and short-term memory and concentration are entirely normal, apart from a mild degree of difficulty in concentration when he's feeling anxious, which is quite normal. Ian Huntley doesn't currently suffer from any form of mental disorder, making it appropriate for him to receive treatment in a hospital. It's felt appropriate he be remanded in a normal form of custody. End quote. Then Huntley was transferred to Woodhall Prison. This was an entirely different prospect for him. He was kept in isolation from other prisoners for his safety in a high security Category A prison. He was housed in a cell constructed especially for him for his safety to ensure he didn't harm himself and that he could be observed at all times. Despite all the special measures, Huntley still managed to stockpile medication and took an overdose of the antidepressant amitriptyline on the 9th of June 2003. He was found in his cell in a coma. He had also attempted to hang himself. When security at the prison came under question, not only due to the nearly successful suicide attempt, but because a reporter had managed to secure a job and take photos of Huntley, he was moved to Belmarsh, nearer to London. Again, there he had a specially constructed cell for his own safety. Maxine Carr was also kept in isolation, mainly to protect her from being attacked by her fellow inmates. She was checked on every 15 minutes by prison guards to ensure she didn't harm herself either. She began to exercise compulsively and her anorexia returned, with her often going days without food. She was hospitalised after a collapse into unconsciousness due to lack of food and ended up being tube-fed there. When she returned to custody two days later, 
She remained on a glucose drip as she continued to refuse to eat. Slowly, and after speaking with a therapist, she began to eat again, but would attempt to cut her own wrists in May of 2003. She kept in touch with Huntley and they sent each other love letters and discussed their forthcoming marriage. They wrote to each other every day, and Maxine would often send multiple letters, up to four a day. That is, until the 10th of December 2003, when she suddenly informed the prison authorities that she would no longer accept post from Ian Huntley. Huntley burst into tears when he was told about this. On the 16th of April, Huntley and Carr appeared at the Old Bailey in courtroom number one for pre-trial hearings. Understandably, the court was packed with press and photographers, and Holly and Jessica's parents had made the journey south to observe the hearing too. Despite the fact that the couple appeared alongside each other in the dock, Maxine refused to look at Huntley. She stared straight ahead, and despite the fact that Ian looked to her often, she never turned to look back at him. Both entered pleas of not guilty to their respective charges of murder and obstruction of justice. Legal proceedings began with a pretrial hearing relating to the press attention that the case, and therefore Huntley and Carr, had received, and whether or not this would impede their ability to get a fair trial. The media attention may have influenced the public such that trying to find an impartial jury would be impossible. These hearings began on the 27th of October 2003 and were again held in courtroom number one in the Old Bailey. London was chosen as the venue for the trial in order to ensure a fair trial for the pair, given their notoriety and the amount of hate that there was towards the pair from the public and in their own communities. The judge heard submissions from counsel for Huntley and for Carr, as well as the Crown's response to them, in one afternoon, and then Mr Justice Moses retired to consider the motions. The next day, both were dismissed. On the 29th of October, counsel for Huntley told the court of certain admissions his client had made, that the girls had called to his house that they had gone upstairs, that Holly had died by accident, and that Huntley had then accidentally killed Jessica. It had not been his intent to harm or kill her. He also said that he had left their bodies in the ditch, burned them, and then returned home and burned their clothing. It was now clear that Huntley and his team would not be contesting a large portion of the facts of the case, it would now come down to Huntley's state of mind and whether or not he had the requisite intent for murder. Huntley and Carr's trial began in the Old Bailey on the 5th of November 2003 with Mr Justice Moses presiding and Richard Lantham, Queen's Counsel, appearing for the Crown. The jury was composed of seven women and five men who sat listening to Lantham's opening statement. He went through the girls' last known movements that day and then said he would show that Huntley had killed the girls with forensic evidence and witnesses who said his car was not parked outside his house for the entire evening and others placing car in Grimsby. Mobile phone records put the girls near to his house. He said it was his understanding that it would not be disputed that the girls had entered the caretaker's house that night 
and that they died there sometime after half six. Police outlined for the court that 49 fibres from the tops Holly and Jessica had been wearing that night were found in the caretaker's house and in his car. His hairs were found among the half-burned clothing in the barrel in the shed, which Huntley had access to. His fingerprints were on the bag that had covered them from sight. There was also soil and pollen consistent with the sort found out where the bodies had been hidden, in Huntley's car boot. The prosecution's case was that somehow, as they were out on their walk through Soham, Huntley manipulated the girls into entering his house. It's possible he said that Miss Carr was upstairs in the bath, a story he later told the police, but whatever he said to them, they followed him in. Then he attacked them and killed them, by manner unknown, but likely strangulation. It seemed he hadn't planned this attack, he had no weapon at hand, and there were no obvious signs of injury left on the two little girls' bodies. The only marks left on him were three faint scratch marks just above his jawline on the left side of his face. After he'd killed them, Lantham said that Huntley then had the job of covering up his spur-of-the-moment crime. He bathed the girls' bodies. In the process, he dropped one of them, causing a dent or mark on the bathtub. Later, Huntley would tell the police that this was caused by his dog, Sadie. After carefully washing away any traces of DNA, he redressed the girls and then went about meticulously cleaning his house. He cleaned down every single piece of furniture and every room from top to bottom. The dining room, where it's likely he killed Jessica and Holly, was utterly stripped of its contents altogether. It was put to the jury that Huntley cleaned and cleaned until he was sure that there was no forensic trace of the girls in the house. By around half past eight, he had finished his clean-up and so he went outside, dropped the back seats in his Ford Fiesta, and after wrapping the girls up in a blanket, bundled them into the boot of his car. He then drove through Soham Town and headed north away from the town. He drove for 30 minutes until he reached Lakenheath, which was a place he knew well as his grandmother lived there and his father had lived nearby for a time. He kept going until he got to a tiny rural laneway that ran along the edge of the RAF base near to the town. It was actually used by the American military at the time, but despite its increased security, Huntley managed to go unnoticed by the military patrols. He didn't even meet another car on the lane, which was convenient for him as it was so small that one car could barely pass another. Then he turned onto a dirt track that he had used while plane spotting, which led to a small wooded area known as the car. He stopped the Fiesta next to a ditch that was about five foot deep and had some stagnant water sitting at the bottom of it. He lifted the girls one by one down the bank of the ditch. Again, he was concerned about forensic countermeasures and had taped black bin bags around his feet, just in case the police were ever to find this spot. Then he cut off the girls' clothing by flashlight. He then slid them both further into the ditch, under a fallen log, and partially into the few inches of water that sat there, before quickly leaving to try and get back to his house. 
He didn't want to have to account for a long absence from home. He got there by 10pm and firstly decided to be rid of Holly and Jessica's clothing. He went to the large shed that sat across from his house. It was used for storage and had no windows. He found an empty drum, dumped the clothes in it, and poured petrol over them. Then he lit his bonfire with his cigarette lighter. But quickly, due to the fuel and the synthetics in the fabric and shoes, the barrel was bellowing smoke and Huntley put it out. He needed to be rid of the clothing, but he also didn't want to draw attention to himself by setting an obvious fire. People were already out searching. He gave in, and before heading back to the house to shower, he dumped Jessica's phone into a skip on the school grounds. Once he was clean of any sign he'd been out in a mucky field, he put Sadie on her leash and went out walking. He wanted to be seen, to establish where he'd been that night. He ran into the people who were closing up the sports centre for the night, who asked him if he'd seen the girls. He said he hadn't. He continued his walk around the town, stopping to speak to the people who were out searching. He ran into Sharon Chapman, Jessica's mother, and her sister in the car park of the college, who asked if Holly and Jessica might be somewhere in the school. But he told them that the grounds had been searched, and they weren't there. On the Wednesday after the girls' disappearance, after he'd given DNA swabs to the police as part of their investigation, Huntley became worried that he might have left DNA on the girls' bodies, and so he put a can of petrol he used for the lawnmowers in the school into his car and returned to the dirt lane near Lakenheath. He poured the entire bottle over the two small bodies and set it alight before turning around and visiting his elderly grandmother in Lakenheath. It seemed a good way to excuse his presence in the area. Members of the jury were brought to both the house on the college grounds and to the ditch in Common Drove beyond Lakenheath to view the scenes involved. When it came time for the defence to set out their case, Huntley had decided to say that the deaths were a tragic accident. He took the stand himself and said that Holly had come into the house and gotten a nosebleed. He and the girls went upstairs to the bathroom to tend to it, but she had fallen off the bath and hit her head. Jessica then, according to him, began screaming that Huntley had pushed her friend and he held his hand over her mouth to stop her screaming, but she went limp. When he looked back at Holly, he said she was face down in the water in the bath. The two girls were dead. As he recounted his tale for the benefit of the judge and jury, he cried. He said the reason it had taken him so long to come forward with this story was because he was frightened and in shock, but he felt he had to tell the truth now, for the girls' families. Then he went through how he'd taken the girls and dumped them in the ditch and cut their clothes off, and then gone home to help search. But Lantham for the Crown picked apart Huntley's story, asking if Holly's face was in the water. Why had he or Jessica not simply helped her? Why was it that instead he felt the need to hold Jessica by the face as she screamed and struggled to get away from him, or perhaps to help her friend? It didn't make sense. Huntley got angry with the barrister, which was exactly what Lantham wanted. The jury could see now that Huntley was capable of losing his cool and of being aggressive. 
but Huntley continued to deny that this was the case, and even said that he had never told Maxine Carr what had happened that night. He had just said that she needed to say she was with him, so as to give him an alibi. The day after, Carr took the stand. She described her relationship with Huntley and said that she had loved him and planned on marrying him. Carr described the relationship as abusive and controlling, but was careful to never say that he was violent or physical with her. It would show that she knew he had a temper and could strike out, which would hurt his case and hers, because the idea that she had thought he had not intentionally hurt the girls would have been totally laughable if that was the case. She admitted that she had lied to the police and to the press and public. She said, quote, Though I know it wasn't right in moral terms, I thought I was doing the right thing for that person. I didn't want Ian accused of anything that he hadn't done. End quote. But she went on to describe the crack that had been left in the bathtub when she got back from Grimsby that week and the load of washing in the machine that Huntley had never used before, and the sopping wet floor in the dining room. She said that because of Huntley's tempers, she didn't question the situation at the time, and felt that she had to lie for her own safety. When the prosecution accused her of exaggerating the abuse to make her less responsible, Carr began to cry. But she was angry and indignant too. She said, quote, I'm not going to be blamed for what that thing in the box has done to me or those children, end quote. All the same, she denied that she knew or had even suspected that Huntley had actually killed the girls. She said if she had, she wouldn't have stayed with him. In closing, Lantham said that it was his belief that Huntley had lured the girls into the house motivated by something sexual. But whatever he had intended went wrong and resulted in their deaths. Carr, he said, had been acting merely to protect herself. She wanted to ensure that she lived a settled life, married, and had a family, and to preserve that, she had to protect Huntley. After four days of deliberation, around 18 hours in total, on Wednesday the 17th of December, the jury returned with their verdict. Huntley was found guilty on the two charges of murder. Carr was found guilty on perversion of justice, but not of conspiring to cover up the murder with Huntley. Ian Huntley was sentenced to two life sentences for the murder, and Maxine Carr was sentenced to three and a half years for lying to the police. Carr went about trying to ensure that she spent as little time in prison as possible, and appealed the severity of her sentence. While waiting, she had herself transferred to the more hospitable Falston Hall in Derbyshire, which boasted extensive grounds. She also applied to be part of a fledgling programme for early release, provided she wore an electronic tag. But there was public uproar that she might not serve her full sentence, and so David Blunkett, the Home Secretary who had introduced the scheme, blocked the application in order to stop the whole programme being brought into disrepute. It was also discovered that she had been paid welfare in the form of housing assistance that she was not entitled to while living with Huntley, and had claimed qualifications she didn't have in order to get jobs, particularly the teaching assistant position in St Andrews, 
and she was charged in relation to those incidents too. Meanwhile, a public inquiry was set up to discover how it was that Huntley had been allowed to work closely with children, given his past. The simple answer was that he had never been convicted of any crime. Of course, he had gotten an underage girl pregnant, and had faced at one point both burglary charges and a charge of rape, but these had been dropped. The Bitchard inquiry looked into whether police databases could hold information about charges that had been brought against people and then subsequently dismissed. But of course, that raises a whole new set of problems where people might be treated adversely due to crimes that they were never proven to have committed. There have since been reforms in how various authorities share information to make it harder for people to slip through the cracks when it comes to working in or around children particularly. When Carr was released from prison, it was apparent that there would have to be measures put in place to protect her from the public, who had reacted so strongly to her involvement in the murders of Holly and Jessica. She was given a new identity and was helped to change her appearance. Her lawyers applied for a high court injunction that would stop the press from even trying to find out where she was on top of not allowing them to name her or print her address. It was granted, and in May 2004 she was free to go, having served 21 months for aiding her fiancé in covering up his role in the girl's disappearance. She has since started a family. The super injunction remains in place. Huntley is still kept in the high-security Wakefield prison, where he remains at risk of attack. He says now that he is sorry for what he has done, and that even though his tariff is a minimum of 40 years, he will never seek release, out of respect for the families involved. The Chapmans have maintained a silence throughout their ordeal, making very few statements publicly about their loss of Jessica. The Wells have been more vocal, taking part in documentaries and with Kevin Wells writing an emotional book about his experiences. That book formed part of the research for this episode and is linked in the show notes. He also involved himself in reforms that took place to ensure that vetting procedures were more effective and has aided a children's charity that deals with childhood grief and trauma called Grief Encounters. Holly and Jessica would be 27 today if they hadn't walked past Ian Huntley's house that August afternoon. They lived in a quiet town. They were well-behaved, never any trouble. They went walking and stayed in the areas they'd been told to keep to. They'd been taught about stranger danger and had a phone with them. And yet, despite all that, they weren't safe from a predator from someone they thought they knew, and from someone they thought was safe. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. A big thanks this week to our newest supporters on Patreon. Thanks to Ray Gaither and Alpha Janelle Watson. They will have some awesome Mens Rea merch sent out to them and access to bonus content as well. We now have two episodes available monthly, Mens Rea in Brief 
which recaps what's been going on in the Irish courts from the month before and guilt trips, minisodes covering individual cases. So head on over and support the podcast today. Every little helps. Our theme music is Quinn's song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. That night, Jessica's phone records were ac- were ex- were accessed were accessed by the police. Stone Hall in Derbyshire, in Derbyshire, in Derbyshire. Do you love true crime, history, and mysterious happenings? Every week on the Cult of Domesticity, a guest and I discuss a different historical happening a true crime story, or whatever strikes our fancy. Join me, Courtney, every Thursday to hear some fascinating tales from some fascinating people wherever you listen to podcasts.